Happy NADOC week, Gladys and Poddies. Did you know that two in every three souvenirs claiming to be Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander are fake? And the Indigenous communities and some of the poorest communities are missing out on their share of a market worth at least $250 million. So I thought we'd uh, revisit our 2021 chat with an expert on Aboriginal copyright, NADOC's Indigenous Person of the Year in 2011, Terry Jenke. We're about to talk about intellectual property rights for Indigenous people. And for me, the story begins at the very first meeting of the Australia Council. Goff's Prime Minister, and I'm the shiny, bright new uh, chair of the Film and Television Board, and sitting opposite me is one of the most remarkably handsome human beings I'd ever seen. And he was the head of the Aboriginal Arts Board. His name was Wanjuk Marika. And he was absolutely motionless and silent while the rest of us... uh, performed our little set pieces. We were so excited. But he wasn't. He was his first time on an aeroplane. He'd never been in a lift before. But all he wanted to do was tell us of an outrage that he'd observed at King's Cross the night before when he'd been taken for a a quick tour. And this included going into a a shop full of indigenous kitsch, you know, fake boomerangs and all the rest of it. And he told us about tea towels. He found some tea towels on which his people's most secret images were reproduced. And he said, my people have been dying. We didn't know why. We couldn't understand it. But now I know. And he was talking simply tea towels. Terry Jenkins is a Wutathi Merriam Indigenous author with a passionate interest in this Area. She's a leading international authority on Indigenous cultural and intellectual property. Terry, I've told how I first became conscious of the lack of protection. When did that happen to you? Oh, thank you for your story. I wasn't aware of that history. Um, I became aware of it when I worked at the Aboriginal Arts Board, which was in the early 90s I was working there. So I hadn't met Wanjak Marika, but I was aware of his call for greater copyright protection over Aboriginal art that was being copied, uh, unauthorised copying, and, you know, sacred designs, putting on tea towels, as your story has told just then. And, you know, no copyright being recognised in these works because uh, it was commonly believed that Aboriginal art was just folklore. Aboriginal people followed these designs handed down through the generations, therefore had no originality in terms of the necessary criteria in the Copyright Act. It was it was ins- as insulting as terra nullius in its way. I think so. And, and, and look, Wanjak Marika pre... Um, 
The Marbo case, uh, he, this must have been in the 1970s that you were talking about then because that's when I think he was the chair. Yeah, and he, very, he very early that. 70s, in 73. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he he was, yes, calling it um, terra nullius and, of course, we didn't have uh, the Marbo case until the 90s and it was against all of that backdrop that I became very interested in this gap in the law. Well, it's it's a huge gap, and you're trying to fill it, aren't you, with your uh, with your new book, True Tracks. True Tracks aims to address the gaps in the law, which leave Indigenous people open to such terrible exploitation. Now, we should deal with the fact that for non-Indigenous people, the word culture may have a a narrow meaning or meanings, but it is profoundly important to Indigenous people. Yeah, a lot of uh, common uses of culture means like high art, going to the ballet or the art gallery, which, you know, is one part of culture. But for Indigenous people, culture is identity and it's uh, pertaining to all aspects of life. And, you know, you see it in knowledge and stories and connection to country. And that becomes particularly important to Indigenous Australians because of dispossession of the land, those stories, that art, that identity becomes so important for us to keep. Culture means Indigenous ways of seeing and being connected to plants and animals, all things on the land, in the sky, in the sea. It is absolutely holistic, isn't it? Yes, it is holistic and, you know, you're telling the stories of, of art and art might depict you know, totems, stories of country which have greater meanings that uh, also relate to, you know, stories of the seasons, you know, um, particular plants, the medicinal properties or just, you know, the, the night sky. So it's much deeper and, as you say, holistic. I want to talk about plants later because there's, that's a whole story in and of itself. But uh, tell me about the True Tracks framework that you have developed. Well, that came out of uh, many years of working in this area to uh, advocate for new laws. And um, I'd written a paper uh, well, a report about 21 years ago now, and it was calling for sui generis or standalone laws to, uh, as one jock was calling for in the 70s, and that never came about. So I decided to uh, develop some protocols, 10 principles, which would be useful for Indigenous artists, creators and knowledge holders to assert and, you know, when people came to engage them. And um, how it's worked out is that there is a lot of goodwill in industries, in, in the arts industry, for example, and in film and, you know, moving into science as well. There's been greater take-up of these protocols as principles to engage and deal with Indigenous cultural and intellectual property. Now, your framework is being, well... It's now being used by a range of people, not only artists, but universities, museums, galleries, IT companies. Yes, we've done some work for some large IT companies and, you know, even people that are working with Indigenous people in, in construction. It's, um, yeah, it's really um, quite flexible protocols and the book goes through the different areas where the protocols have been applied. 
What are some of the challenges that arise when it comes to Indigenous language and copyright? Well... I mean, as I understand it, copyright only applies to things that have been put into a material form. That's right. So it's written down. So straight away there's the issue of a culture that's very oral, you know, told by sitting around the campfire or going out on country, those sort of things have been the way Indigenous people have kept culture orally. So if you look at copyright in Australia, we need to have material form. It needs to be written down or recorded. So automatically there's a problem there for Indigenous knowledge systems which are based on that transmission oral culture versus a Western culture that gives, uh, uh, you know, it it favours the written form. Now, another requirement is that the works must be considered original and originality is a, well, it's an irrelevant note, non- notion when you're talking about a culture which has been transmitted, you know, for th- thousands and thousands of years. It is because, you know, that continuous t- retelling and nurturing of the story is keeping to its integrity um, and, and the linking to, you know, the ancestral knowledge but that said, there is originality in each generation, you know, uh, reinterpreting the story. So uh, the copyright cases that went through in the 90s uh, sort of overturned that belief that Aboriginal art was folklore and not copyright. And, you know, um, uh, Bundak Marika was one of the artists in the Carpets case who um, uh, a judgment went through the federal court that copyright did exist in Aboriginal art that followed these pre-existing themes so long as there was this skill, labour and effort which the artist embodied in the work. And, of course, copyright doesn't consider communal ownership, which is at odds with how Indigenous languages and other things are collective responsibilities. Yeah, it's looking for that um, Western concept of an individual author. So what happens when... Uh, heritage item belongs to a collective group to be shared and, and passed on. So the uh, the gap in the copyright law is that, you know, this collective right, uh, although uh, there has been one case that recognised it, automatically um, the laws are based on providing economic rights to authors and this cultural rights uh, for Indigenous cultural and intellectual property is a gap. Terry, how did you get up to speed in this area before we push on with the narrative? <laughs> how, you know, how did you happen in this regard? I was just fascinated by this. I was fascinated by art. So I, w- I was fascinated by uh, those um, early um, artists coming through. I-, I used to go to the galleries and see the art, so I loved that. And then when I was studying uni, I was finding it quite difficult because I wanted to do something in social justice but not knowing, you know, was I going to go into the courts. So I actually dropped out of uni and worked at the Aboriginal Arts Board and it was just me being able to uh, learn about art but also so much happening in the world at that time with Aboriginal artists going overseas for exhibitions and you had 
books being written and Bangara was starting up and there were theatre companies. So I was just so just absorbed by it. And I, I then thought, I'll do that, go back to uni, and I did, and I did very well. Terry, did, were you always fully aware of your own Indigenous heritage? I was, and as a kid, you know, I have um, Aboriginal parents. We grew up in far north Queensland, and uh, my parents were very active in uh, the community, actually. I remember my parents um, being involved in Opal, when we were kids in Cairns. And I even remember good old Uncle Dick Ruffsey, who was also <laughs> um, on the art sport. I don't know if you remember Yes, him I, knew, I knew him and loved him, yeah. So they sort of come around the home and, you know, my parents moved from Cairns to, to Canberra and, um, you know, we connected with that Indigenous uh, community of families of people who had moved to Canberra to work in government and, you know, that was that was a really good time. That was in the 80s. Worldwide, Indigenous peoples are calling for recognition that the ownership of traditional stories is collective and continuing and that permission for publishing such collectively owned material should be sought. Are people listening elsewhere? Well, it's been a long time that people have been calling, like, Indigenous people in Australia, Canada, Aotearoa, New Zealand, but also, you know, African communities and also South American communities, uh, traditional knowledge holders have been calling for laws that recognise, you know, whether it's um, bush remedies or designs, traditional designs and knowledge. And there have been moves in the World Intellectual Property Organisation to look at um, how these are... Uh, traditional knowledge, traditional cultural expressions interface with IP laws. But after 20 years of having a government, inter-government inter committee talking about it, it still hasn't really reached any conclusion. During the bicentennial, I had a government checkbook and could write out things for interesting proposals. And one of them was from a couple of chemists living in Darwin who wanted to do an Indigenous pharmacopoeia. They wanted to, to tell the world about Indigenous medicine. And I remember their sales pitch involved Aboriginal women, when pregnant, making a muddy paste out of termite mounds and sucking on that paste. And when it was analysed, to everyone's astonishment, it contained pretty much the same elements that were used to handle morning sickness in Western medicine. Now, I remember being absolutely astonished by that and for the first time was conscious that something like called Aboriginal science was real because, of course, to this day, people still deny it. Yes, there are hundreds of stories like that and, you know, even when I was a kid growing up, uh, the uncles knew how to uh, to make remedies to heal skin diseases and stuff like that and people all over the country have stories like that and, yes, it has been seen as, um, you know, ignored in the past or just knowledge taken and appropriated but what I advocate for in the book is the opportunity to work with Indigenous people who have this knowledge and collaborate and can bring about, well, 
remedies and solutions for a whole lot of ailments, but it it can also provide social and cultural and economic benefits. Well, so we're talking of something which is just just as requires the same sort of copyright protection as does collectively created art. Yes. I think it is. It is. It's it's that and it would be really uh, very useful for there to be laws that protect Aboriginal people's knowledge in that way where at the moment uh, the gaps in the law mean that Aboriginal people don't want to share that knowledge or if if it's released in, or because it's already been written down and taken, it means that there's this disconnection and the relationships that Aboriginal people have to the plant or to that knowledge is taken away. And with patenting, plant breeders' rights and those sort of IP rights um, being able to be claimed by outsiders, I really think it raises an issue of un- unjust enrichment, really. Terry, let's walk this back to the issue of uh, the appropriation and destruction of Indigenous art. Beware of the bogus boomerang. Talk to that. (laughs) Oh, yes. um, That's that's been a continuing issue even back in Wanjuk Marika's days with Aboriginal art becoming so popular and people are copying the style. So uh, you have these boomerangs that are not made out of, you know, the hardwoods that Australian Indigenous people would make them but made made over in Asia and imported into Australia and the designs on them not made by Aboriginal people or, you know, the painted dots just put on there by um, non-Indigenous people. So... Uh, what Beware of the Bogus Boomerang is, is alluding to is all of this um, rip-off market that's basically um, copying the styles and not not um, not giving economic returns to Indigenous people, but it's also very trashy. So it not only deceives consumers along the way, but it robs Indigenous people of the chance to earn and uh, some sort of a living out of authentic product. Yeah, I, I think it definitely does. It makes people sad in your statement about Wanjuk because they feel that it's mimicking and um, belittling culture that's quite reverent and to be held um, in high esteem. And it's like um, stories or, you know, the types of uh, ways that um, people paint the, their stories or their icons come from country. So if you take them, it's like you're taking their backbone. Terry, are patents in any way effective and appropriate? Well, there have been some Indigenous communities that have worked with inventors and become uh, co-owners and co-inventors of patented uh, inventions that include uh, traditional knowledge of plants. Um, in some ways, I guess, if there's a commercial um, product that they're developing, it, it could be of use. But you've got to be careful in in that once, um, you know, to get a patent, you have to disclose that knowledge. And the patent only lasts for 25 years if it's a bio um, patent. 
and then it's in the public domain for everyone to use. And I think that that is where there's the risk because after the years it's free for anyone to use. Talking to Terry Janke, author of True Tracks, now I want you to take me to India and tell us about the Traditional Knowledge Digital Library. Yes, India was dealing with the problem of outsiders um, taking their knowledge and patenting it in overseas um, jurisdictions. So one of the ideas that, that they came up with was to put together a database of their traditional knowledge and so that that would be made available to patent examiners, examiners and defeat claims of inventive step and that it would um, say that this is not new because there's a prior art base um, that is documented in the database. Now, this would be a big initiative in Australia, but there are so many different Indigenous groups. Yes, but I think it's a model to look at. The, uh, the big issue is that the prior art base uh, that um, is, is the test that patent examiners will um, test a knowledge against to see if it's novel, it's often written science journals. And that Aboriginal knowledge is not written down. So that's where these databases are quite useful to defeat these claims of novelty. Now let's look at film and TV. And uh, I became quite a close friends with Wondrook after that amazing initial meeting of the Australia Council way back when, because as you know, Wondrook also got involved in some films, not all particularly good ones. One was an atrocious thing called Where the, the, called the Green Ants Dreaming. Uh, but when it comes to film and TV, it must be difficult for Indigenous people when they're signing documents, signing uh, release forms. Yes, um, and the rights are sort of agreements that you can find in the film industry can be quite lengthy and understanding how uh, the knowledge or the story is going to be used is very important. So, I, you know, it's, it's quite common though for uh, people to be given um, and, and negotiate release forms, but it must be clearly detailed. In the old days, you'd see these release forms that said handing over all rights in all media, um, not yet known, and, you know, for everything. So what uh, I think clients should do would break it down for your uses. And then the other issue is um, what happens uh, with the uh, if there's any cultural mourning protocols and use of deceased image, images or voices or names, um, like you commonly see now um, when you're filming those warnings about um, the film including images of a deceased Aboriginal person. Now, you also cite the work of uh, the Maori filmmaker, Barry Barclay. <sighs> I was fascinated by his book, actually, which he wrote probably 15 years ago as a non-Indigenous uh, filmmaker who was working with a lot of Māori film. And um, I think it was very interesting to see how um, 
you know, his point of view in that I think it was called Mana Tuturo. And, yes, um, what sprung out of, um, you know, today there are many Māori filmmakers making films, um, some of them winning Grammy Awards. <laughs> and, you know, <laughs> it's it's been um, very good to see. Well, I I know from my film industry experience that filmmakers are not the most trustworthy profession and that they're quite capable of, uh, shall we say, taking liberties with anything, let alone something as fragile and as and as strong, because it's both in a way, as Indigenous, uh, as indigenous culture. It's a very powerful medium film. Um, it continues to be, and for Indigenous people, I think the um, uh, the it's it's been really a, a medium that they could tell stories on. I think that shows, and increasingly you, do, not not yes. waiting for or even allowing white fellow filmmakers to get in the way. Yes, and you can see, you know, like Rachel Perkins. Um, and and other Indigenous filmmakers doing so well, you know, Warwick Thornton and um, many others coming through making some great films. You've been listening to my chat from 2021 with uh, a leading international authority on Indigenous cultural and intellectual properties, the wonderful Terry Janke. Uh, her book is uh, called True Tracks, which uh, aims to address the gaps in the law which leave Indigenous people open to terrible exploitation. Now, since we spoke to Terry, the Productivity Commission conducted a review into Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander art that was in late 2022, which recommended new cultural rights legislation to be introduced to empower the traditional owners to decide how their cultural assets are used in visual arts and crafts. ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. 